Slip, Slop, Slap featuring Sid the Seagull. Tan is not worth dying for. Seek and Slide. UV, it all adds up. If you're of a certain uh, vintage in Australia, these slogans will be incredibly familiar to you. Australia is very much the home, in addition to being the home of the kangaroo and the wallaby and the dingo and every single poisonous animal and venomous animal on the planet, Australia is very much home to skin cancer. And Josh, our focus previously in the podcast has very much been on melanoma for justifiable reasons. It is the nastiest one by a significant margin, but lest we be accused of discrimination, it is not the only skin cancer that we as oncologists have to deal with. That's very true. We have other types of skin cancers that we deal with as well. The lead-in point that I will let you continue talking about. Um, So welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, and we're taking a step off the beaten path today because we're going to talk about rare stuff. Uh, This is something that any oncologist has to do. It's a commonly held belief that when you start getting your letters and building up a practice, you need a moneymaker and you need something that is interesting. And we're very much on the interesting side of the spectrum because today we're going to talk about two separate types of non-melanomatous skin cancer. Josh is going to talk about squamous cell, which has uh, seen a small explosion in treatment options uh, over the last few years. And I'm going to be talking about the very rare and not very well known or studied Merkel cell cancer. Josh, do you want to give us a bit of a background on your uh, chosen squamous speciality? I would love to. And given that in Australia, it was 37 degrees in Melbourne today and a beautiful balmy 26 or 27 in Sydney. No wonder we have so much skin cancer in this country. And for our American listeners, that is 37 degrees Celsius, which is probably over 100, 110 degrees Fahrenheit. So hot. In a word, yes. Let's talk about skin cancer. I love this. I mean, we're not dermatologists, but we are oncologists. And well, Michael is, and I'm almost, I'm a wannabe. And I want to start with a fact before I talk about squamous cell carcinomas. Michael, solid organ transplant recipients. So these are people who get liver replacements, kidney replacements, heart replacements, um, other internal lung replacements and other such internal Not, not yet brain replacements. <laughs> not for me anyway. Um, what do you think the risk of them developing squamous cell carcinoma is in comparison to the general population? I don't have a number off the top of my head, but I know that it is very, very high. The worst skin cancer or recurrent skin cancer cases that I've seen have all been patients who have had transplants. That's exactly right. Very, very high. So tell me the number, Josh. That the high, high number is as high as 250 times more likely than the general population. So for anyone who's studying transplant medicine or advising patients on transplants, this is why it's so important to tell your patients to get regular skin checks. And of course, these are people that are on active immunosuppression. People who are not on active immunosuppression would probably have the equivalent risk of someone else who doesn't have a transplant. But I suspect if you're not on active immunosuppression, your transplant probably isn't working. 
but we're not ones to uh, lecture the transplant physicians on their immunosuppression, but we are going to lecture them, or Josh is going to lecture them on what it can do to your patients. That's exactly right. So I'm not a transplant specialist, nor would I want to be. But non-melanoma skin cancer is the most commonly treated cancer here down under. It includes basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas. The Australian population doesn't, the estimates are bad because they don't actually keep a record. But as an example, it is more than five, it is more than five times the incidence of all other cancers combined in Australia. That's how common this is. So to put that in perspective, in 2017 in Victoria, with a population of about six, six and a half million, I think, or is that Melbourne? That's six and a half million. Um, there was about 100. I mean, there's not many people uh, outside Melbourne in Victoria, right? <laughs> ah, there's a lot of places outside of Melbourne. Michael's just Melbourne-centric. Um, shout out to Wangaratta. <laughs> so <laughs> in 2017 in Victoria, there were 141,000 cases of non-melanoma skin cancer were treated. That's about 387 treatments per day. And what do you mean by treatment? Well, I guess when I'm talking about treatment, most... And you, you took part of my talk away, but most skin cancers, including squamous cell carcinomas, are actually cured with just surgery. But we're here to talk about the other options because as an oncologist, I'm not going to be removing your skin cancer lesion. That's going to skin cancer lesion. That's going to be your general practitioner or family medicine doctor or a dermatologist or potentially a plastic surgeon, depending on that severity. As a brief outline, when you kind of look at the division between basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas, 70% of non-melanoma skin cancers are BCCs. I'm going to abbreviate it as BCCs. 30% are squamous cell carcinomas. Part of the morphological difference is that uh, BCCs rarely metastasize, whereas squamous cell cancers can. So when we look at the incidence, it's increasing over time um, and it drastically increases in those above the age of 75. So it's about five to 10 times higher in the older age populace than the young. Evidently, that's because of cumulative DNA damage. What are the risks? There are a plethora. And let's do a little bouncing here, Michael. Tell me, I don't know, 35, no, no, not 35. Tell me a couple of risk factors for squamous cell carcinomas. Well, you mentioned one, which was immunosuppression, and I guess the you focused on transplants, but I'm guessing that people with other reasons to be immunosuppressed, people with HIV or some congenital uh, immunodeficiency are also at higher risk? Yeah, 100%. I think you, you have to include them in that bracket. And um, taking a uh, leaf out of Hugh Jackman's book, who's had a couple of skin cancers removed, I'm guessing that uh, sun exposure is a major risk factor? 100% it is one of the main environmental carcinogens implicated in the pathogenesis of cutaneous SCC. Oh, Michael, here's, here's your next quiz point. So to, to kind of win the episode, let's put it that, is it UVA or UVB that is the predominant cause? Oh, I did know this. I'm taking a punt, as we say down here. UVB. Yep, you are the best, Michael. UVB it is. I win a car. <laughs> you get a car and you get a car and we'll continue with risk factors now. <laughs> <laughs> Please continue, Josh. Oh, yeah. So um, tanning beds. So in summary, tanning beds are bad. Um, you know, there's inherited disorders like xeroderma pigmentosum, which is the inability to repair UV-induced DNA damage. Then you've got the epidermolysis villosa, which is a group of 
mechanobullous skin diseases that share a common feature of blister forming occurring with little or no trauma. Others include albinism, albinism, and drugs. This was an interesting part, actually. I didn't know this when I was doing my radium article. There are drugs which have been implicated in increasing risk of SCCs. I'm not talking about illicit drugs, um, unless you want to take an antihypertensive illegally, but I suspect you don't. This would include... Yeah, you've got to watch out for those people <laughs> overdosing on antihypertensives on street corners. 100%. Um, that includes voriconazole, so long-term use of voriconazole in immunosuppressed patients increases your risk of skin cancers. Didn't know that. Um, thiazide-like diuretics, so I'm talking about hydrochlorothiazide, whilst this is a bit of a controversial one with a meta-analysis saying it didn't increase the risk, but a recent Dutch study of about 8,000 patients showed that it did. Um, so you can think of that and things like azathioprine, but of course, aza is going to, it's one of those immunosuppressive agents used in multiple sort of transplant patients. Other things to talk about, men predominantly more than women, uh, I guess, at risk. And that's just something sort of interesting to say. So what do you do when, how do you prevent it? I guess that's the thing. So prevention is better than cure, slip, slop, slap, apply sunscreen protection regularly and for a long period of time. Um, B3 nicotinamide is an option. Have you ever used vitamin B3, Michael? Not as a preventative, no. No. So Maybe I should. It's, um, it's been shown to lower the number of BCCs and SCCs uh, in the placebo group, so 1.8 versus 2.4. I think that's times, corresponding to an overall rate reduction of 23%. So that's pretty cool. Just, just from uh, popping a vitamin pill. I have used it occasionally, uh, but not for many, many years. And now let's talk a bit about treatment. So, you know, we as oncologists generally won't get involved in the day-to-day of diagnosing uh, skin cancer. Um, I don't know how many skin cancers you diagnose in your clinic, Michael, but I don't do that many. Not many at all. And so what do you do? So first of all, you need to stage it. Um, If it's very small, likely they're just going to biopsy it and or remove it surgically. There are definitely benefits of biopsying at first because if it's a very aggressive lesion or it's a very deep lesion, then that will help influence probably how much you take out or whether you refer on. And, you know, the surgery, that's kind of the the gold standard for 95% of patients. Prior to the study, I will talk about chemotherapy, Uh, or radiotherapy is sometimes an option. Um, Chemotherapy for the metastatic disease didn't work particularly well. Um, And so I I guess the reality is people don't really want to use it because it just didn't do that much. That's really my summary of skin squamous cell carcinoma. Is there anything else you wanted to know, Michael? Um, Not particularly. I guess the main thing is that one skin cancer as with so many things, is not really much to worry about. You catch it early, they're very slow to metastasize, and generally that's it. But for people, particularly immunosuppressed people, or for people who allow the cancer to become quite extensive, or it's in a very inconvenient place, the face or the neck is very, uh, very significant or can cause a lot of problems from that perspective. Um, recurrent SCCs or just uh, the same SCC being incompletely excised and growing back is a huge, huge problem. It's very um, disfiguring 
and often requires multiple surgeries, multiple rounds of radiotherapy. And I guess for the purpose of our listeners, by the time they come to us, it's often a very, very significant and very, very, as I said, disfiguring process that they've been through. And then we have to give them systemic therapy. The uh, um, identity of which, Josh, I'm sure you will illuminate us immediately. I will, without a single hesitation or sidebar or distraction. Without a moment's delay. Without any moment's delay. Squamous cell carcinomas, metastatic, I I mentioned this previously, but 95% of patients are cured just with local treatment. In the States in 2012, up to 8,700 people died because of metastatic cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. And we say cutaneous because it always originates from the skin. And let's talk a little bit about the background of squamous cell carcinoma. So SCC has features of a tumor that is likely to be responsive to systemic immune therapy, given the high mutation burden of the tumor. Those who have a high mutation burden are likely to respond from a checkpoint inhibitor, possibly because the tumor have increased neoantigen expression. The thing with this is that a lot of these cancers are due to the sun, so it's ultraviolet-mediated mutagenesis, which is just, I think, the background of when we talk about this treatment because I'm going to be talking about, wait for it, wait for it, immunotherapy. Oh, my goodness, what an unexpected surprise. I know, but what is unexpected is this is not our regular Keytruda or Pembrolizumab or Nivolumab or even Tizolizumab. This one is called Semiplumab. Yes, not a not a regular friend of the show, is it? No, well, look, friendly because it does something. Well, you know, yes, doesn't come on every week. Talk about how great it is, but it is a good drug. So it's it's spelled C E M I P L I M A B. Semiplumab. Play school. Sesame Street. That's what I was thinking of. It's play school or Sesame, Sesame Street. That's the one. All right. So it's brought to you by the letter semiplumab. <laughs> letter semiplumab. These kids are smart. So semiplumab is a high affinity, highly potent human hinge stabilized IgG4 monoclonal antibody to the PD1. So it, it attaches to that PD1 again, guys. And there was pre-existing evidence in a phase one trial that showed it had some good outcomes, essentially. And that's why they had this phase two trial. So this is a phase two, not a phase three, and it is a single arm. So it was an open label phase two single arm trial assessing the clinical activity and safety of semiplumab in patients with advanced cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma across 25 centers in Australia, Germany, and the US of A. Inclusion criteria include you have to be 18 years old, you have to have biopsy-confirmed SCC, a good performance status, and at least one lesion, making it advanced or metastatic. They were based on imaging with CTs and MRIs, and the exclusion criteria including recent autoimmune disease requiring immunosuppressive therapy, previous solid organ transplantation, um, and patients with hematological malignancies were not eligible. Patients were given semiplumab 3 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks up to 96 weeks. And the level of PD-L1 expression was also assessed. And what were the outcomes? What are they looking for? So primary objective include uh, objective response, so how many people responded. And there were multiple second, secondary endpoints, including objective response, duration of response, 
progression-free survival, overall survival. I've said objective response twice, but I'm assuming objective response is only the primary. That's just because it's twice as important. Twice as important. It's only, I think, the primary objective. And, of course, safety and tolerability, which is what we always want with all our drugs. Um, Additional secondary endpoints included pharmacokinetics and immunogenicity. So when looking at the demographics, predominantly male, three-quarters male, most people had very good performance status. And the primary site was head and neck, which you'd expect a lot of skin exposure in the head and neck region, arm arm and legs, and very few in the trunk. About 50% had previous cancer-related radiotherapy, and about 15% had previous cancer-related systemic therapy. Uh, And that's really, I guess, the most important bits to sort of talk of. And when we look at objective response, and this is the outcome, everyone, and this is what I really want to focus on when, and I'll tell you a bit of the statistics about how much chemotherapy worked previously. It didn't really work very well. But the objective response out of the 78 patients involved was 44%. So that was 34 patients patients best overall response so about 13 percent had a complete response meaning their cancer completely disappeared a partial response was 31 percent and stable disease was 36 percent so disease control which as i tell my patients is vital disease control means if we your cancer doesn't get worse you can continue to live a pretty good life so disease control was in 79 percent of patients and durable disease control meaning for a certain period of time 63% of patients. So 79% of patients responding positively to a cancer trial is phenomenal. Um, Medium time to to response, and this is another thing we always take into account, chemotherapy works faster than immunotherapy. This particular trial took 1.9 months. Um, Median duration response was not reached, and observed duration response greater than six months was 68% of patients. Uh, the proportion of patients who remained in, in response at the 12-month period was 87%. So that's, that's pretty good. Um, the interesting thing is that the follow-up is still ongoing, and there's a couple of points that I'll talk about a little bit later. But let's talk about the median progression-free survival. But neither of them had been reached, which is wonderful. The skin cancers um, and the estimated proportion of patients who were alive and had no disease progression at 12 months was 58%. So that means at 12 months, those are receiving treatment, at least half of them had responded and stayed responding, which is great. Um, If we keep looking at the other data that's interesting, so PD-L1 TPS scores, Michael, do you want to talk us a bit about TPS? I think we've done it in a previous episode, Josh, but basically TPS is tumor proportion score, which uh, looks at the proportion of cells in a tumor as opposed to combining with the tumor as well as the infiltrating immune cells that expresses PD-1 as opposed to CPS, which is very confusingly used in some other studies that is the combined uh, proportion score of um, the tumor cells as well as the immune cells. That's great. And look, you know, the people probably have already listened to our previous episodes, but if not, go back in the menu, have a look, listen to that episode. Hopefully you now remember what uh, TPS and CPS stands for. It's going to come up again and I'll probably and if not, you again. Absolutely. I was going to say, it's <laughs> definitely going to come up again. Uh, so look, that, that's really interesting. Um, 
and I'm just going to talk about the fact that objective response was observed in patients whether they had sort of negligible PDL1 or PDL1. Uh, yes, there was, a, I think, a higher response in patients that had a PDL1 score greater than 1%, so that was 55%, and it was only 35% in those that had a, a PDL1 score of less than 1%. So that's just something to think about when treating someone and looking for evidence of response. Grade three or four treatment adverse related events was in about 44% of patients. Um, and with the most common being hypertension, pneumonia, uh, six patients discontinued treatment because of treatment related adverse events. I have treated patients with simiflimab and I have seen, I've actually seen people with the valumab as well, get hypertension, very manageable, but just it's recognizing the signs and kind of having a long-term strategy for that. Other side effects were as you'd expect in any other immunosuppressor, uh, sorry, any other pdl one agent or um, immunotherapy, including fatigue up to 41%. Uh, diarrhea, 27%, itchiness, 27%, nausea, 22%. Uh, not huge, and although it sounds massive, but these were predominantly grade one and grade two. So when we say that, they'd continue on treatment, would give them steroids, you know, loperamide, something to slow down their bowels. I mean, maybe not if it's immune-related diarrhea, you wouldn't do that, you'd treat it with steroids. But again, what I guess I'm trying to say is that very a lot of tr- the side effects are very manageable and similar to previous studies. Okay, Um, duration, a couple of discussion points to talk about of the study. Uh, And this is what I wanted to talk about. So before this study, the larger prospective study in patients with advanced cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma had a median overall survival of 8.1 months. Incredibly shocking. Thank you for agreeing with me. And when we look at the longer follow-up, so one of the things that it's always important to look at in the study is how long is that duration of follow-up? Because if the duration of follow-up is short, stats might be really amazing, but you want to know in real-world outcomes that it's going to be good. The median duration of follow-up was 15.7 months, and the median duration of response was not reached, and the observed duration was between 1.8 and 34 months. So one patient had been followed out to 34 months and still had an ongoing duration of response. So the estimated proportion of patients with ongoing response at 24 months was 76%. And I think that's just phenomenal. You've got an immunotherapy agent with incurable, unresectable disease that you cannot take out with surgery, you cannot treat with radiotherapy, you know chemotherapy isn't good, and you've got a new immunotherapy kid who's not that new, um, or she, on the block, and they can potentially give a great quality of life. So cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas get pretty morbid. Um, Michael, I don't know how many you've treated, but we do quite a lot of my center. And they're fungating, they bleed, they they really impact people's quality of life. And there's a lot of people who are older, so even things like changing dressings regularly become difficult and, you know, you, you scratch it, you'll bleed for ages. I've had patients need sort of, crushed up tranexamic acid to treat these sort of wounds. And it's really hard to watch. So if this shrinks it or potentially improves it, you know, that's wonderful. Another little thing which we were talking about probably at another stage, they're even looking at semiplomab in the neoadjuvant sphere. 
I haven't spoken about it this this particular episode because I want to save some juicy gossip for another episode. But but it is promising. It is promising. Neoadjuvant semiplumab. It is very promising. That's it. Adds a whole host of its own questions as well. What happens when you treat someone with neoadjuvant and then things disappear? But we will talk about that at another time. Um, again, questions I had in the study. They chose ninety six weeks, like. The most immunotherapy trials choose two years because we don't know is that long enough, is that short enough. I assume they're just using the same protocol. Um, the treatment-related adverse events are fine. I'd be interested to go through the appendixes and see in the actual protocol they used whether they rechallenged people um, on immunotherapy who had a severe immunotherapy-related adverse event. I was reading an article the other day, it wasn't about this drug, that when you look at recurrences of IRAs, which are immune-related adverse events, that can be up to 33% of patients if you do rechallenge. Generally, if it's a grade 3 or above, you won't even consider it. But if it's a grade 1 or grade 2, which most of these side effects are, you might consider it. The other really nice thing about this drug is that it's infused over 30 minutes. Yeah, considering the alternative of sort of what is sort of used in in our centre after semiplumab fails is carbotaxol, and that's probably two or three hours. Um, There really isn't, from what you're saying, Josh, a, a good reason to do anything other than semiplumab if there is, if all hope is gone that, this is something that can be sort of controlled surgically and radiologically. That's exactly with, it. With radiotherapy, I should say. Yeah, 100%. And I also know that this drug has been approved for non-small cell lung cancer. Um, again, not going to go into that very much, but it does have a couple of other applications as well floating out there. It will be interesting to see, and this is something that I think we've mentioned previously, that the um, the space for immunotherapy is getting more and more crowded. And whether that means more competition, cheaper immunotherapy access, and things eventually coming off patent, is it going to be a case where we're, um, we can sort of pick and choose based on centres, based on physician preference, uh, which immunotherapy we use? Because as we know, just because they act in the same pathway or on the same pathway, that they are not the same drug. They have different preponderances of side effects they have different sort of efficacy even if it's sort of similar so there's definitely differences between your semiplumabs your pembrolizumabs your nivolumabs aside from the pd1 pdl1 split so uh, don't sleep on semiplumab sort of in general but definitely don't sleep on it in squamous cell is the is the takeaway it's a great takeaway mikey i'm good at taking things away josh <laughs> you have but don't take my semiplumab i want that <laughs> So, <laughs> look, I, I think the yeah, summary is that this is a treatment option. It's definitely a viable option, whether people live rurally, regionally, or, you know, in a large sort of tertiary center, um, very manageable side effect profile, um, having treated lots of patients myself and, you know, can potentially improve people's quality of life, um, if not potentially cure them um, of a uh, drastic disease. But I'm going to stop yapping. And I think it's time we switch tact. Now, Michael, I know I wanted you to do basal cell carcinoma, but I think you've you've jumped the gun and you're going to talk about Merkel. I wanted to talk about Merkel cell cancer because, number one, I've actually encountered it, despite it being so rare, I've encountered it a lot more than uh, 
basal cell cancer that's gotten to the stage where uh, an oncologist is needed. That's generally a, a very unusual, but also a very, very bad uh, outcome. And two, I guess the Merkel cell is quite close in behavior, in aggression, if not in incidence, to melanoma. And also, Josh was doing an immunotherapy and I couldn't let him have all of the immunotherapy fun. Immunotherapy but, was mine. It was mine this week. <laughs> yes, I decided to undercut you. There's There's been some tension at uh, uh, Inquisitive Onc headquarters this week uh, <laughs> where... Josh called dibs on all of the on all of the immunotherapy, and I said poo poo to your dibs. I'm doing it as well. I only wanted it for the year 2023. You can have 2024. <laughs> okay, sure, right. <laughs> um, I don't think there's enough immunotherapy for the two of us for 2023, 2024. Um, so, look the um, the study I'm going to talk about is Javelin Merkel 200. We've talked about a Javelin trial in the context of bladder cancer using Avelumab, and as the name suggests, it's the same drug used in a different context. But first, a little bit about Merkel cell, because it is not something that I knew much about before I saw it a couple of times, and even now, there's not really much uh, that, well, I certainly don't know uh, enough to call myself an expert, in that I've basically read the up-to-date article. But from the up-to-date article, I can tell you that Merkel cell is a very rare cancer. Uh, from statistics in the US in 2013, there are 0.7 cases per 100,000. So this is very much the metaphorical zebra. If you're dealing with a uh, rapidly growing skin lesion, don't necessarily go straight to Merkel cell cancer, but they do pop up every now and then. Uh, it's so rare that we don't actually know exactly where it comes from. Obviously, the name suggests Merkel cell cancer. One would think that it arises from the Merkel cells, which are in the basal layer of the epidermis and hair follicles. But there's some trains of thought that think it might actually arise from pluripotent stem cells. We don't know. There's not enough data. Uh, it is associated with the integrated Merkel cell uh, poly- polyomavirus, um, which is a ubiquitous virus uh, that, as that word suggests, is present everywhere. Um, but it is not necessary. It's not necessarily uh, to the uh, development of a Merkel cell. You can think of it in terms of HPV in the development of oropharyngeal and head and neck cancers. It is definitely present, but it is not necessary. So there is a significant proportion of patients who are Merkel cell virus negative. It's also associated with UV radiation exposure, exposure, increasing age, and, stop me if you've heard this before, immunosuppression. Uh, The age is quite uh, striking in that it's not necessarily a linear increase as you get older. Um, In terms of risk of developing Merkel cell, it is an exponential risk. Uh, As to to illustrate this, the incidence of uh, Merkel cell cancers in the US again in people aged 40 to 44 years is 0.1 per 100,000. In people aged 60 to 64 years, it's 1 per 100,000. And in people greater than 85 years, it's 9.8. So the older you are, there is an exponential increase in the risk of uh, developing a Merkel cell cancer. Um, we, the, so in terms of risk factors, 
uh, the many of these cross over with risk factors for other types of skin cancer, light skin color. So obviously your Caucasians in Australia or Western Europe or the US, um, increasing age, we've mentioned male sex again, immunosuppression, again, HIV transplants, and even the immunosuppressant drugs such as azathioprine that is associated independently with an increased risk of Merkel cell. And also having another malignancy, particularly hematological malignancy. It stands to reason if you're sort of thinking, well, this is one, this is a cancer that is associated with a virus if you've had a hematological malignancy that requires complete sort of obliteration of your bone marrow and your immune system, it's you're less likely to be able to clear that virus and one thing leads to another. Um, but obviously that's not 100% the case. But if you have a malignancy, particularly a hematological malignancy, you are at an increased risk. Josh, how do you think Merkel cell cancers present? Because they have a, a, a fairly textbook um, uh, physical appearance when you say present, are we talking like a pearly, shiny appearance, like a little lesion that you find? Yeah, you're exactly right. The shiny, uh, pearly is a word that's um, described. Flesh-coloured is another way I've seen them described. Um, sort of bluish-red nodule. And the other thing is that it's rapidly growing. Mm. So you can have... Uh, pearly is sometimes used to also describe things like BCCs, SCCs, depending on sort of their appearance. But if it's rapidly growing, it's much more likely to be a Merkel cell than an SCC or a BCC because we know they're quite slow growing. So you're exactly right, Josh. Well done. Yay. Um, they, <laughs> they usually arise in sun-exposed areas, uh, 43%. So a majority uh, arise in the head and neck region and a further 24% arise in the upper limb. So a minority are going to be on uh, arising from non-sun exposed areas. Sometimes you do have these cases and there's one at our center at the moment where the uh, site of origin is not apparent. Uh, one of our patients who's currently receiving a Velomab at our center, uh, it actually appears to have, well, that it was discovered in the pancreas, which is a bit weird. There didn't seem to be any primary, but this is quite similar to what we sometimes see with melanoma, where we have the, you know, the the TX um, classification, which sort of means there's no obvious primary, but it's been found in lymph nodes, it's been found in the viscera. Um, So before the advent of immunotherapy... Uh, Merkel cell carried a poor prognosis with a five-year over survival, overall survival of approximately 14%. It was chemo-responsive, but it behaved in a similar way to what we sort of deem uh, is the case with your small cell lung cancers, in that even if, even if you had a fantastic response, the response wasn't durable. Even if you had a, a complete response, we knew that it was still there, biding its time, waiting for us to look the other way, waiting for us to stop the chemo, which, of course, we always have to do because of toxicity. Uh, and then it would recur. So very unlikely to have a durable response. Um, so as a result, and because of this trial, uh, the Javelin trial, chemotherapy is not really recommended currently for um uh, Merkel, the treatment of Merkel cell cancer, sometimes it's given in the adjuvant setting, uh, but for the sort of systemic setting, the um, the uh, metastatic setting, I should say, 
So moving on to the Javelin trial itself. So this is a phase two prospective single arm open label multicenter trial. So it's very much in the experimental phase. The other thing as well, when you're thinking about the actual cancer that we're studying here, it'd be very difficult to recruit because the incidence is so low and there probably wasn't enough uh, people to have a decent uh, enough population or a large enough population with which to compare. So the uh, study design, while an, while not ideal, we love our big multi-center randomized blinded control trials, uh, but the, the reasoning behind it is probably understandable. In the end, they managed to scrounge up 116 people with advanced Merkel cell cancer. Um, and one thing about this Javelin trial is it came in two parts, which could have been two separate trials, but hey. So part A was patients who had had previously treated, which I'm not going to talk about. So um, these are patients who had had previous chemotherapy and then Avelimab was given as a second line. What we're really going to talk about is the current standard of care, which is part B. And these were patients who had previously untreated metastatic Merkel cell. Um, and they were enrolled to receive Avelimab 10 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks. It's a single arm study, so there's no comparator. They could have received adjuvant chemotherapy if the treatment ended greater than or equal to six months prior to study enrollment. So again, you're sort of subtly culling out those people who are rapidly progressive, probably not going to respond to Avelimab anyway. Treatment continued until significant clinical deterioration and unacceptable toxicity. There was also some exploratory biomarker analysis, which I'm nowhere near smart enough to make head or tail of, uh, but they looked at um, uh, CD8 immunohistochemistry, uh, so infiltration of immune cells, as well as the Merkel cell uh, polyomavirus. Uh, For those who had tissue left over, they also did some TMB testing as well. TMB stands for tumor mutational burden, And it's basically a catch-all phrase about how messed up the cancer's DNA is, how many mutations are there. And previously, it's been thought to be a marker of uh, efficacy of immunotherapy. Uh, This has been called into question a little bit more recently. The primary endpoint was the presence or absence of durable response, which was defined as a complete or partial response of greater than or equal to six months. Again, Addressing the shortfalls of chemotherapy, where you might have a good initial response, but you recurred almost inevitably. Secondary endpoints were best overall response, duration of response, progression-free survival, and safety. In terms of the demographics, as anticipated for the, uh, the for this study, given the cancer... Uh, sorry. As anticipated, given what we know about the cancer, the vast majority were elderly. 81% of patients were greater than 65 years old. The median age was 74. The majority were male and uh, good functional status of ECOG0. Interestingly, 65% of patients were from Western Europe. You had about 20% of patients from the US and a handful of patients from Australia, which, given that we are the unofficial skin cancer capital of the world, is not really what I was expecting. Uh, 68.1% of patients had visceral metastases. The majority, the remainder had lymph node metastases. Uh, and only six patients had had previous anti-cancer drug therapy with platinum, cisplatin or carboplatin, plus etoposide. There was a surprisingly small number of patients who were pd one positive at 19%, and 60% of patients were positive for the Merkel cell virus. And in terms of response, uh, and results, I should say. And in terms of results... 
So 30% of patients had a durable response. So this is a response greater than six months. It's not great, but again, this is something that we do see with immunotherapy is that if you have a durable response, that response is really extended. So 46% of, uh, sorry, 46 patients had confirmed complete or partial response, and the overall response rate was a tick under 40%. The drug seemed to work fairly quickly. Uh, 43 of 46 patients had a response by three months, and the median time to response was actually six weeks, which is a fair, a fair degree faster than other immunotherapy trials, Josh, where most people tend to have a response around the two-month mark. Why is that, Michael? I do wonder if it's if it comes down to the uh, immunoresponsiveness of Merkel cell. We know that melanoma is a very immunoresponsive uh, cancer, and you do see fairly rapid responses with immunotherapy. I wonder if it's the same sort of thing where if we're comparing it to something like lung cancer or renal cell cancer that don't respond as quickly, it's just because there are fewer immune cells ready to be mobilized. But that's just me spitballing. Why do you think it's the case, Josh? I would have said that word for word, but you are, you're right. The, the, the big question that we don't know at this stage is the immunogenicity of certain types of cancers just exceed others. But then ask, raises another question. So you've got, you've got me on a question spree. Why is it that one immunotherapy agent, which theoretically activates the immune system relatively similar to another, work better? Well, this is this comes back to what I was saying before, is even though the pathway is, as far as we can tell, very similar or identical, we see this throughout oncology where one type of immunotherapy will work, another one will not. Um, there have been cases, I think in renal cell cancer, where Atezo was studied, and Atezo just did not work in renal cell cancer, but we come to nivolumab and ipilimumab combination or nivolumab by itself, and it seems to work just fine. So there must be subtle differences, and again, nowhere near smart enough to say what those differences are, uh, but there must be subtle differences that mean that one immunotherapy works when another doesn't. And that's all I got. That's great. Okay, we can move on. Let's move on. The median duration of response was 18.2 months, but interestingly, the upper limit was not estimable. So it wasn't the, it wasn't reached in terms of the range, which means that, and this follows on, uh, 22% of patients had an ongoing response at the time of data cutoff. So these are those long responders, the ones where the immune system keeps on ticking over like a like an engine on standby. Um, that's definitely the mechanical term for it. Uh, and uh, And it just keeps on preventing the cancer from getting a foothold. The median progression-free survival was 4.1 months, the 6-month PFS was 41%, and the 12-month PFS was 31%. So it does seem that if you're, if you're sort of at the 12, presumably the 12 to 18-month uh, mark, then those curves will start to flat out. Admittedly, you know, given that it's a single um, study, there weren't curves per se, there was just one curve, but uh, it hadn't started to flat out yet, I believe. In terms of the subgroup analysis, the groups that did better appeared to be those who were ECOG0, PDL1 positive, who were virus negative and had a higher CD8 infiltration. All of those sort of make sense. Uh, 
In terms of safety, 60% of patients had a grade 3 adverse event. All patients had at least some adverse event. And a treatment-related adverse event occurred in 81%, the most common of which were fatigue, um, asthenia, azathenia, and pruritus. Now, Josh, what is Avelumab notorious for? It's so notorious that when you're studying it, the uh, this has to be sort of baked into how you how you give it. Infusion reactions. Well done, infusion reactions. So it's something that we saw if you listen to our uh, uh, javelin bladder podcast. Uh, there was a very very high rate of infusion reactions. Um, despite them giving an antihistamine, uh, loratadine, prior as part of the protocol. Uh, the same sort of uh, protocol was observed here, but they, I couldn't find any data on infusion reactions, but that is always something to keep in mind with Avelumab. It's given every two weeks, so logistically it's quite difficult to give, um, and there is a high rate of infusion reactions. Having said that, though, Avelumab is by far and away the only game in town when it comes to Merkel cell cancer. If you look at Avelumab on the PBS, I think only recently it's been uh, approved or is about to be approved for bladder cancer. But up until this point, Merkel cell cancer was the only approval for Avelumab in Australia. So it was the only way you could get your mitts on it um, outside of the context of a clinical trial. So really, if you have a patient with unresectable metastatic Merkel cell cancer, there really is no other choice. It is Avelumab or nothing. And that's really all there is to say. It's a pretty good summary. <laughs> no, so in... I mean, this is this is the good thing about doing a rare cancer is this is the one this is the one treatment that you have and if you if it doesn't work you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's the hard part that while we we now have treatments for both squamous cell and Merkel, they're both difficult to treat and the treatments are not perfect. They're good, like they work, but they don't work for everyone, which is that next step of understanding mechanisms of resistance that I feel I mention every week we're on this, tr- on this discussion point. But you know what? Given how terrible our treatment options were beforehand, anything is better than nothing. Absolutely. But it does mean that we can save time on our usual segment at this point, which is where do the treatments we've talked about actually fit into clinical practice? Because it's you give them unless you have a very good reason. And even sometimes if you do have a very good reason not to. I had a patient who, um, coming back to your study, Josh, who was a transplant patient and ended up having multiple squamous cell cancers. And we gave us a miplomab. And if you think about it conceptually, simiplumab aims to increase the uh, effectiveness of the immune system. There are a lot of drugs that are holding the immune system back with a metaphorical finger in the dike. And she just had no other options. It was very intensely discussed with her. Initially, she was a bit uh, worried, as we were. We basically said this is a last resort. But it got to the stage where it was that or a horrible, disfiguring death. And so we sort of said these are your options, and she elected for the semiplomab. Last I checked, she was still going, but, you know, uh, between us and the renal physicians, we're all looking at a kidney function just on tender hooks, just waiting for it to go off. So it is, it, that's sometimes, and with the population that gets these sort of cancers, that's sometimes the situation that you can find yourself in, and it comes down to a discussion with the patient. 
it's a rock and a hard place. At least for a renal transplant, you could probably put someone back on dialysis. Oh, they probably wouldn't if they had an incurable disease, but you know, they might've already had a fistula or something and they can kind of have that discussion point. Again, I'm not a renal physician. I don't want to imply that no, I would know. We have, no pre- we have no pretenses that we're also transplant physicians or renal physicians. But you're right. We like, have our lane a- and we're sticking to it. <laughs> That's it. We'll leave you to it. So look, it's hard, but if they're going to die from something, you might as well try if they're happy to kind of take the risk because there's always a chance it doesn't do anything and they get treated and their kidney transplant is a-okay yeah absolutely so uh once again we are emphasizing the importance of communicating the risks and benefits with the patient so they can make an informed decision and it's important that some patients will surprise you that's it and i think this was a great episode michael and welcome back 2023 kicking goals kicking goals and starting off with something rare that a lot of our listeners probably won't see or haven't seen and may never see but it's uh, something to be aware of stay tuned for our next episode coming to you in seven days on oncology for the inquisitive mind i think that one thing we haven't talked about josh and we've mentioned it sort of obliquely a couple of uh, times have we talked about renal cell cancer As I look up the episode list, I don't think we have. That's really weird, right? So we've gone, we've gone, uh, addressed Merkel cell cancer before renal cell. I think that's a bit of an oversight. On the next episode of Oncology and the on our next episode for Oncology of the Inquisitive Mind, we will be looking at renal cell carcinoma. So all you transplant physicians. Evidently, you would never transplant someone who has metastatic disease, but we'll be talking about how to treat RCCs. Stay tuned and stay classy. <laughs> I'll remember that. Fantastic, fantastic sign off, Josh. And I will lose all respect for you if you edit that out. Well, you heard it from the man, the man himself. The man himself. Stay classy, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye.